welcome everyone. We're about to get started. Um, my name is Eric Brown. I work here at the Institute, and it's my uh, unique honor to welcome a guest from afar, from a country which is one of America's oldest allies, um, Morocco. Dr. Abadi is the Secretary General of the Rabita Muhammadiyah al-Ulama, and he'll be speaking today about Morocco's experience tackling violent Islamism. There are, of course, dangers and opportunities with the start of every administration. It can be a time for backsliding, for petty bigotries and discredited theories to reassert themselves with renewed vigor. But it can also be a time for reinvention, to take stock, to assess what policies have worked and what haven't, and to plot a new course forward. It's become, over recent, in recent years, commonplace to say that the struggle that we're involved in is a generational one. The Middle East, as we know it, is experiencing a historic ideological and political convulsion. The end of it uh, is nowhere in sight. Uh, the U.S. obviously has an interest in the outcome of this struggle and a desire to see a more livable, more ordered, more just, and more decent Middle Eastern order to emerge. Yet much of the innovation in our government and in our policy has been spearheaded by our military and our, and our intelligence services. No matter how important and necessary they are, they don't address what is at the core of this current struggle. And at the core of that is fundamentally a political and an ideological contest. We still don't have the dynamic civilian institutions and strategies to be able to compete in that contest. More worrisome, a common analysis continues to uh, be elusive here in the United States about how exactly to define both our enemies, but as well to understand where the opportunities lie for us to begin to influence and to partner with our various allies and potential allies across the Middle East to be able to roll back the threat that we face in the form of Salafi jihadism and other forms of utopian radical movements. Greater clarity in all of this can be found by studying in depth Morocco's experience. In 2003, after a series of suicide attacks uh, had ripped through uh, Casablanca, the king of Morocco, Mohammed VI, declared war on ideologies, quote, from the east, which had penetrated his country's mosques, radicalized young people, and weakened the country's indigenous traditions of toleration, Sufism, and adherence to traditional Maliki Islamic law. Since then, the Kingdom of Morocco has combined, uh, has implemented a very comprehensive strategy, I would say probably the most comprehensive out of the entire Arabic-speaking world, to tackle this threat to violent extremism. It has involved ramped-up security measures in the form of more intensified community policing, among other things. Um, but it has also involved a suite of so-called soft measures, um, including new community-driven uh, development initiatives. In fact, the National Human Development Initiative has become increasingly the envy of a lot of developing countries around the world and here in the U.S. where there's strong bipartisan support for infrastructure development. I would say we have a quite a bit to learn from the practices of the National Human Development Initiative in Morocco as well. But it's also involved efforts to reform government, to prevent new forms of corruption, <clears throat> including in the palace, um, and of course also um, uh, in education and in youth outreach. What makes the Moroccan uh, strategy, I would say, quite unique has been 
the king's and the kingdom's focus on the ideological component of the struggle, on the war of ideas and on the struggle over the habits and sentiments which uh, create communities which are susceptible to the penetration, the infiltration of radical ideologies. One of the leaders in this has been, of course, Dr. Ahmed Abadi, who is, as I mentioned, the Secretary General of the League of Mohammedan Scholars in Rabat. One of the tasks of the League has been to, one of the tasks, I should say, there are multiple tasks um, that, that the League has been charged with um, uh, uh, pursuing. Uh, but one of the primary jobs of Dr. Abadi is to tackle, to dismantle, and to discredit, to deconstruct the ideology of Daesh and the broader ideology of the caliphal revivalism that has been sweeping the Arabic-speaking world and elsewhere, including in South Asia and Central Asia today. And I will have to say that in my tra traverses across the region and elsewhere, I've learned an enormous amount from just hearing Dr. Abadi to hear his historical reflections on the vacuum of ideas which has led to the rise of the caliphate revivalist movement and the insights that he has about how we can begin to think about conducting a long-term strategic competition with this uh, ideology, which is growing larger and, and, and more virulent on a day-to-day -day basis, um, are something that we all as Americans, I think, need to pay close attention to. So with that, it's an honor. Thank you, Dr. Obadi. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Such a pleasure to be here today and share and learn about this quite intricate topic. Uh, this is definitely one of the most multidimensional problematics that our world has ever known because it taps into utopia, into dreams, into weaponry, into communication, into persuasion, into politics. And this diversity of that realm of this very problematic definitely imposes a complexified but yet complementary approach. This approach definitely needs to tackle the issue basing itself on collective work. Now, we homo sapiens have learned this concept of person years. We've discovered big deal of algorithms that allow us to deconstruct a work that would take from one person, let's say, just one million years, and can do it if we know how to find one million using those new technologies, people, and using the appropriate and adequate uh, algorithms, we would know how to cut this work into pieces of a puzzle and then recollect it and have the work quite done. What is possible today was not possible just a decade ago. And many of my generation are familiar with Fuller, Mr. Fuller Buckminster, who used to, to speak about those issues here in America. But he smelled, he felt that this was feasible, but yet the uh, tools were not uh, disposable uh, during his time. Now, 
it is possible. Now it is, it is a turning point that we need to grasp, to seize, and start realizing that the limits of impossible have just vanished. I'm saying all this to say that we now need to learn how to work collectively to deconstruct this vast, large, complexified problem into its pieces. Well, the political time definitely does not allow such an approach because politicians do have a limited period in office and they need to get it done within this period. They need to squeeze it in or if they cannot, they would just send Shimiri's uh, reflections saying that, well, we've done it. We uh, solved the problem. And, well, this is uh, where we could uh, stop and uh, the next generation into office would do it definitely. And those uh, sayings have lasted uh, in our little pale blue dots for quite too long. We need to change it. We definitely need to opt for a new time, new dimension of time. Time where there would be complementarity between us, we homo sapiens. There is a big disease we do suffer from, which is the disease of egocentrism and centrality. Each one of us feels that she or he uh, are the center of the universe. And this would drive us into compiling works, jobs, duties in our lifetime, omitting that there is the possibility to think in a broader, larger manner, not just in a linear way. How to make the shifts and start thinking of ourselves that are drops in the ocean of possibility and feasibility. This might sound quite philosophical, but this is very functional. Very functional because those people, we're talking about Daesh, have realized that this is the way to do it. And they are uh, distributing the work into parcels that look like the parcels of puzzle, and they would try to do the work in a diverse manner using those new technologies, using uh, algorithms, and creating magnetisms that are very powerful. I'll just highlight four of those types of magnetisms that are used by Daesh. One, the dream of unity. After the collapsing of the Khilafat in 1924, when Mustafa Kemal Atatürk stepped out and said, well, everybody on his own, and Turkey, from now on, is restricted in Anatolia. This was a choice. And he took the responsibility to make such a choice, and his co-citizens agreed with him, and, well, we uh, do not have anything to do but pray for, for, for the success. But many other countries in the, in the region were left like orphans. Those countries, such as Syria and Sham region, Lebanon, Palestine, other countries, such as Egypt, such as Iraq, such as now didn't exist that time, Jordan, and then Tunisia, uh, Algeria, and uh, Kosovo, and Bosnia, Herzegovina, and other countries, even some parts of India, were not used to make decisions. 
Decisions used to come in the form of faramans from Astana, Istanbul now, and would be implemented by the pashas, who would definitely try to ensure, yes, the interests of al-Babul Ali, the Khalif, but also of the crew that is working with them. And the people, indigenous people, not the uh, people from uh, an Ottoman, Turkish background, were just there implementing whatever they would be asked to implement. They did not learn how to make decisions. And this is why this orphanage feeling was so heavy, and people started looking for a panacea, a cure or pill. The dad is dead, so we need to look for a new dad. And this new dad would be the new khalif. And this is why this theory was very seducing uh, theory. Everybody said yes, because this is the easy way. Let's, let's build up a khilafah again. And this was the theory of Muhammad Rashid Rida, and then his disciple Hassan al-Banna, and then al-Nabhani of Hizb al-Tahrir, and then when it didn't succeed after the uh, forming of al-Ikhwan uh, Muslim, Muslim Brothers, then we have pan-Arabism, and then pan-socialism, pan pan-communism, and all those flavors and aromas in the region that strived to implement, create a new form of unity. Daesh is saying, well, we have the divine way to implement Khilafah. And Daesh is here to stay and to expand. And this is why this dream of unity was so appealing and attracting to youngsters who were disappointed, who were in quite despair due to many other uh, elements and, and factors, parameters such as corruption, such as injustices, such as Name it. And this is how we've witnessed this draining in of the youth from age 18 to 35 or 40 even in this, uh, you know, uh, Ambroglio called Dash. The second dream that forms also a big magnetism is the dream of dignity. You are wifeless? Come to me. I'll marry you to the most pious, beautiful lady in the world. Your husband less come to me, I'll marry you to a jihadist stallion. You are jobless, come to me, I will, I will give you the uh, post and office of head of intelligence, uh, maybe secretary of state of defense, whatever you would like. You are willing to be a scholar, a true scholar of Islam, come to me, I'll give you the zipped training that would make out of you a scholar in five days. If you pass away, paradise now. And you have the opportunity to cross from zero to hero in no time. And this dream is very magnetic. And unless we succeed in producing alternative dreams, then we'll be beaten in this ground, in this arena of Morpheus of dreams. The third dream is the dream of purity. What Daesh has brandished in terms of purity is that the other's religiosity is stained and pure. We are offering you the purest forms of religiosity.
A religion without bita, a religion without any false notes. It's all pure, and this is how the prophets uh, used to practice religiosity. And we should recall here that those dreams used to be in the region, the businesses of other compositions of politicians, of militants, and so on. The first dream unity used to be the business of Muslim brothers, of Islamists, of Pan-Arabists, of Pan-Socialists and Communists, and so on. They've hijacked it. The second dream used to be the dream of the militants for human rights and justice and transparency, and name it. They've hijacked it. And in a holy, divine manner. The third dream used to be the dream of Salafists, because this is what Salafism has been saying for uh, uh, almost a century in the region. They have hijacked it. The last but not least is the dream of salvation. This is the end of time, and we have the Arch of Noah. If you want to save your soul, come to us. Take a seat in the arch, otherwise you just perish. And this is very powerful, because I've been trying to retrace why we homo sapiens do feel that we are very old, a very old species. Whereas we are a very young species. I don't know from where exactly. I have some ideas, but I do not know from where exactly this Conviction infiltrated our thoughts. We need to agree and to stick with the fact that definitely the best is yet to come. So this arena of dreams has been an omitted, neglected one. And this gave them the chance to work in tranquility because there was no competition. Under the excuse of realism, and uh, the excuse of functionality, and uh, uh, the excuse of being operational and efficient, we were speaking a wooden language that was not well perceived, nor welcomed by the youth, who were looking for something exciting, some hardcore uh, entertainment in the real world, some real action here. This is exactly what was provided, and we've been trying to observe their discourse and their materials on the net, printed, audio, visual, audiovisual, both. And we tried to extract what are the greatest messages and the biggest messages. One of them is this keenness to make adrenaline flow within our youngsters through music, to colors, to subliminal images, and, and so on. I'm not saying that they are super men and women. They're normal people, but they're just mastering the fruits of the era. This is simply what it is. And we definitely can use those tools and items better than what they can. I've been trying to meet with people from Google, from Facebook, from Twitter. I succeeded, actually, meeting with, with those interesting uh, minds. And they're ready. They're ready to do the work. What they lack is narratives. And there are people who can produce, actually, those narratives. 
The good news is that in the world, we have no less than 5 million Islamic scholars under the payroll, but they're very poorly used. They do not have clear missions. They don't know what to do. Nobody cares for them to build up capacity, to empower them, to teach them how to use those materials and tools, how to shape uh, narratives. I've been challenging my teams, and I gave them one of uh, the tweets of Daesh. And as we, you all know, it's 140 characters, no more. And I challenged them to shape a counter-narrative that will not go beyond this number of characters. Well, simply, in the first tentative and, and trial, they failed. And they've been trained themselves to do it again and again and again. And then they knew that, well, I need to have it in first. I need to know what to say. Not to stick with their narrative and then try to produce a counter-narrative. I need to shape my own narratives. Because otherwise, we would be entrapped, enclaved in the formula of that they are the ones who are producing narratives, and we just are busy to produce counter-narratives. And they'll continue to have the lead if we let them do so. What if we take one million among those five millions and shape a guide of training, a kit, and a toolkit, and use the era and new technologies to create platforms in which those scholars would interact. And we can use videos to speak to them, and we have screens, and they are very cheap now. You know, you can have for a few uh, hundred dollars the best uh, configuration of, of new technologies and yet be functional. It doesn't cost much. And if we build up such capacities, if we empower those scholars who are already in the payroll, they are not volunteering. Actually, it's their job to do such a thing. But what we need is to plan, structure, what are the strategies of communication that we need to engage with. I'm saying all this to say that we are talking in the realm of possible. We are not thinking nor believing that those people are the gods of the old lamp of new technologies. They are very easy to beat, but we need to know how to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm using willingly the word very. I'm not exaggerating, actually. The weakness point is the fact that we're putting in front of tigers rabbits. Why I'm using the word rabbits? Because if you have a functionary, passionless, without conviction, who is just doing a job to receive a wage at the end of the month, you know what dynamics would just uh, be generated. It's, 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 you cannot face those people with people who are not having the passion, the flame of passion within. And this is why we need shifts in this regard as well. How can we succeed those shifts? I'll give you a, a sample. This morning I felt thirst and I went to purchase a bottle of water. There were many brands and one of those brands was 
smartwatch. I'm not publicizing it. But I bought the bottle, and I was reading what was written in there. This is actually distilled water that would go into, uh, that would evaporate, and they would just recapture it and cool it down and put it in a bottle, add in some, you know, some aromas and some uh, items. And it would be a delicious water. What this advertisement says, this is the liquor coming from sky. And if you love the taste of the stuff coming from underground, coats, spring water, it's your business. Underground, <laughs> you see. Those brilliant minds who shaped such a message are very highly needed. The mind of Stanley, who shaped Marvel heroes, you know, name it, Spider-Man, Batman, all those wonderful characters are very highly needed. Isn't Stanley the one who said, with great powers comes great responsibility? So we need to face the guy with what he, he said. We need, we need some entertainment because youngsters are not to be preached. They are not to be lectured. They are to be entertained. And they are to be engaged in dynamics that would be appealing for them. Otherwise, they will not just be interested. So how to create passion among those scholars is to put them in front of the facts. If you do not act, this is what would happen to the world. And you would be held responsible. If you do not act, your children would be recruited. If you do not act, your daughters would be recruited. And in the Middle East, this is quite painful. When you say to a guy, you know, high testosterone guy, your daughter would be gone, this definitely would generate some, some action here. I'm saying all this that we're to say that we're talking in the realm of possible. Well, now, what is this complexified, complexified approach? How to avoid those touchy-feely approaches, very hasty and quick approaches that we are entrapped in? How to avoid those antagonisms, such as hard power versus soft power, such as government versus civil society, such as intellectuals versus politicians, such as, such as, such as, all those notions of otherness that do generate uh, this uh, this antagonism and uh, this incomplementarity in our action. We need all those folks to step in. But what we need first is a comprehensive, adopted strategy. And to have such a strategy, we need it to be shaped by all of us. We certainly do face those people in this arena of dreams, but also in the arena of politics, in the arena of human rights, in the arena of the texts that they pretend mastering. They pretend that they are the ones who master the texts, which means that we need here to reinvent new authorities. Those 
authorities are already there in place. I'm talking about Al-Azhar, talking about Qarawiyin, I'm talking about Zaytuna, I'm talking about uh, Rim in Yemen, I'm talking about all those very ancient schools throughout the world, Indonesia, Malaysia, all over the place. But we need definitely some urgent empowerment to those institutions to have them regain their authority because they've been subject to some deconstruction of the authority by Salafists, by modernists, by uh, new uh, Muslim brothers uh, waves, by uh, Islamists, and by everybody, and by themselves because they were not doing enough innovation and renovation within their, their, their schools. So once again, it's a matter of empowerment and a way, manner to communicate to those people that they can. But they need to recall that there are millions of them. And if everybody among those millions does his, her own share of the work, then it would be done. Also, this comprehensive strategy definitely needs to represent what makes this discourse influential. One of the things that do make this discourse influential are the grievances. And we've been deconstructing the discourse and extracted the 10 main grievances that those people do vehiculate. One conspiracy, that the West, all the West, has been conspiring against the Muslim world to uh, scatter it, to separate it, whereas they were, they would say, united. The United States of America, European Union, uh, Benelux, Commonwealth, name it. And they are denying us the right to unite, dream of unity, and our governors, kings, are not doing anything about that. We need to step out and do it for ourselves and for you. Moreover, we are ready to give ourselves, our lives, as much time just for you and the sake for a honorable and uh, a better future. We're here for you to serve. You know, how, how, how can we counter such a uh, discourse if we do not squeeze our brains to uh, do what uh, smart water people did. Two, colonialism. Those countries factually murdered millions of you here in the region. And no damage repair, no reconciliation were conducted to turn the page. And they are not even sending you a message of such a will of doing a reconciliation movement globally-wise uh, and, and then just solve the matter. And our governors, kings, presidents are not doing anything uh, in this direction. We are now obliging them to uh, think about such damage repair. Three, the issue of Israel. Four, the issue of double standard. Five, issue of humiliation in the media, movie uh, business, and, and, and so on. How uh, the Muslim is portrayed, look, and our governors are not doing anything about that. Six, uh, the uh, Iraqi, Afghani, Bosnian, Herzegovinian, Central African, Burmese, name it, cocktail. Seven, the draining and 
uh, ceiling of wealth. They would say, look, the barrel, which is a metal, costs more expensive than the content, oil, actually. It costs cheaper than water itself. Governors, kings, presidents are not doing anything about that. We are going to restore it. Eight, infiltration of the value system. Nine, amazingly enough, falsification of history and geography. History, they would say, well, look, they do jump over 1,000 years of Islamic inventions and reconnect directly with the Greco-Roman period and era without saying a word about you. What a denial. So we are restoring it. Geography, look at Africa, Asia. They seem smaller than Europe in Mercator map, for instance. And north is up, which means that there is an egocentrism. Why don't you say that when Orient was up, uh, it was an egocentrism? It's, it's amazing the fact that they are alluding to such um, argumentary. Ten, the insulting of the prophets and the burning of the Quran. Those are matters that are in the air. The, you will not find them in blocks. One, two, three, four. This is the efforts of uh, the Kingdom of Morocco, who uh, we tried to extract through running over all those uh, messaging tools and supports to try to derive those messages. And they are definitely uh, subject to some, some, some engagement and responses. This is in one hand. In second hand, you have some 25 Sharia arguments that they do vehiculate. I will not bore you with that, but wala bara apostasy, 25 of them. And they look like the rifle effect in the brains of youngsters, because those people who are shaping such discourses would wear the turban of the scholars and knowledgeable people, and they would irrigate themselves as being the leaders of the masses uh, that are suffering from injustice. In the third place, we have also something very important that we should not forget about, which is how swiftly and subtly the education system has been infiltrated in the region in the name of independence and movement to chase the uh, colonizers out and name it, we've had many infiltrations. We need to revisit what we are putting in the minds of our children. And many of those items, not just in the Muslim world, outside of this, this, this place as well, there are many mind items and we need to take away those minds from those uh, uh, curriculums to have a safe and secure, definitely secure education system. Here I'm talking about this issue of responsibility of the state. How about laicity? Is, is, isn't it an infiltration in the freedom of people, religious people? Is it not a, a type of inquisition? Is it not a manner to impose a single-viewed approach upon the crowds? Is it not injustice itself? 
And I know that this is a very aggressive interrogation. What is the response to that? The response is that the state has the responsibility to guarantee the security of its citizens. If states do not ensure the security, then those citizens will stay a prey for those tigers once again. What Morocco was doing, is doing, about all those matters, is one. Taking into consideration that linearity in the approach would not do. We need it to be horizontal and taken at large, complementarity between all those forms of actions, political action, human rights action, educational action, uh, soft power actions, and, and name it. We need to have it. But moreover, one of the biggest problems we faced in Morocco, and we are facing it throughout the world, is the fact that there is no structure to take care of this problematic daily basis in the governments with a mess. We are doing it in a type of cacophonia. Everybody takes care of it, but everybody forgets about it, about it at the end of the day. There, there, there are no structures guaranteeing the taking care of it daily basis. Someone will be accountable before parliaments, has the Senate, Congress, to whom we would ask questions about what have you done? How did you spend the public money? We're talking about three trillions and a half dollars who just were burned away. What is the output? Yes, definitely, there is some output. But was it, was it the most optimal output? To whom are we going to ask such questions? And of course, in the neurolinguistic realm, we know that when you would pronounce now ISIS, ISIL, Islamic State, Daesh, it would turn red. And everybody would be hyper excited and we would lose our capacity to think calmly and efficiently about the matter. And people are willing to give away their freedom. They're willing to give away their money. They're willing to give away everything. Just get rid of, of those evil people. Kill them all. And we are yours. Recall that throughout history, we've had some infiltrations in the name of siege state and state. We've had some people who took over and deprived their co-citizens from their freedoms in the name of protection and high security demands. So there is a need for vigilance. And this is why we need structures to be accountable before the citizens regarding this problematic. Two, we need evaluation and measurements. This is why in Morocco we've been trying to deconstruct this notion of Islamic State to demystify it, what does it mean, an Islamic State? At the end of the day, it would mean we've been diving deep dives into uh, the uh, books that are of a scholastic nature, and we've derived six great 
characters that need to be observed to have what you can call an Islamic State. And this is rooted in originality. One, preservation of life. This is actually the, 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 the role of any religion, to preserve lives, do not kill. In every religion you would find this uh, commandment. But this can be exploded into criteria, indicators, indices, to allow a measurement. What does the preservation of life mean? It means medical studies. It means training doctors, nurses. It means developing a pharmaceutical industry. It means security on the roads. It means security in the cities. It means, it means, it means to each in this, you would have a grade, a certain amount of, of points. And then you will calculate if there is indeed, in fact, a guarantee of this preservation of life. Sweden has scored way a lot better than Daesh in preservation of life. So what do you mean by uh, the Islamic State? Preservation of religiosity, preservation of dignity, preservation of the descendants and the species, preservation of the intellect and rationality, and preservation of property. And we've been running through those six great pillars, and Daesh has scored very poorly in each of them, even in the protection of religion uh, pillar. And, and articulation, which means that we, we can demystify it. But if we have people that do a daily work, who take care of those issues daily basis? Otherwise, if it's just a lecture here and there, and uh, occasionally we we'll tackle the issue and then just collapse and forget about it for weeks and then go back and then, and we, need to be aware of the facts, at least in my country. There are hordes of people that are out after money because they know that there is money to counter violent extremism. Why not me? Uh, it's, it's a very handsome money and I, I need to get it. How can I get it? How can I build up an NGO, a structure, a research center that would be taken care of extremists? And, violent, and this is how we witnessed pop-ups and the birth of hundreds, thousands of centers that are claiming taking care of such a business. I'm saying this just to point the fact that measurement and demystification is one of the greatest efficient tools to dismantle this magnetism. Last but not least, in Morocco, we tried to represent those realms of civil society because there is a cacophonia, as I said before. Everybody claims that uh, she, he uh, are taking care of violent extremism, developing CV programs. What is the role of states in federating such needed, very highly needed effort without denigrating those energies and those dynamism and those wills 
to cure their societies. We need them. But we need some very clear and transparent indexes to evaluate and measure and point what are the tasks in uh, uh, the instance of, of, of a global strategy. And then we would take every team, every crew, every people, everyone who is taking care of those problematics accountable, uh, uh, given and relating uh, to a very clear way to evaluate and measure those efforts. And money would be given regarding the comprehensibility of the, those strategies. How would you contribute in, in, in that, in this? Also, within this last uh, issue um, I would like to share with you, we have a very crucial need today to rebuild the Islamic countries' authorities related to that. Because what's happened is starting from the 50s with Al-Karim Qasim and Salam Amr in Syria and all those people claimed to be socialists, they neglected and Mohammed Najib and then Gamal Abdul Nasser and all those leaders and Mustafa Kemal Ataturk in Turkey. Religion was not taken care of in a teleological, efficient, structured manner. And a big vacuum was left there. This vacuum was filled up by first Islamists and then Salafists and then Jihadi Salafists and then what we know today. And they tapped in those alike geological you know, layers, Afghanistan, and then Chechenia, and then Iraq, and they could bring in former uh, jihadists into their ranks and with all their know-how and expertise and given birth, to four new castes. The caste of the initiators, Baghdadi, Shikao, and, and, and name it. The caste of the mercenaries who took over and swallowed the initiators, they disappeared. No one uh, listens anymore about uh, Shikao or Baghdadi or just occasionally when they feel the need to uh, bring in the names again. The third caste is the caste of the naives who doctors who are doctors and are willing to build up the Islamic State and so on, and the last uh, but not least caste is uh, the wood for the oven. Those youngsters who would be brought in to die in uh, the arenas of the battle. So, with the first two castes, there is nothing to say. We need to talk to the third and to the fourth. We need to shape new messagings towards those people and try to bring them in like what is done in the battle against addictions. Former addicts are the most efficient. But we need to make sure that, well, the recovering is for real and not just flourishing. For this, we made sure that the action would be in all those uh, articulations, even in prisons, in schools, shaping cartoons, 
video games, colorful and joyful, to compete with the elements that are produced by those violent extremists. And we've been working also on curriculum, we still are. We've been working in the domain of uh, scholarship and history, what is to be derived, reinvited from history to make the perception clearer. We've been working in the text, tackling it and trying to respond to those matters, 25 of them, more obvious. There are some uh, other uh, items that are tackled and, and addressed as well. We've been working in uh, the realm of dreams, uh, competing with Morpheus and trying to produce greater genuine dreams. And we also have been tackling uh, the dimension of governance to make this sustainable, measurable, and efficient. I'll be open to your questions. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much for your insights and your learning and perspectives. Uh, I guess as a practical question, uh, we do have an incoming administration, and there has been proposals that uh, the new administration should at least appoint an NSC-level uh, uh, person who is in charge of conducting um, uh, America's efforts to prosecute the struggle political and ideological as well as military struggle with Salafi jihadi ideas. With a view toward finding the new complementarities that you're talking about, what would you propose um, this new uh, person who would be held responsible to Congress and answer, would answer to the president? What do you propose uh, this person should, should focus on um, as he or she takes, takes this position? Well, the first crucial requirements is a comprehension and a multi-dimensional vision yeah. and analysis and diagnosis to the problematic. We need to make sure that, well, either this person has done uh, her or his homework regarding this assimilation of the problematic or having assets and readiness and skills to engage to engage with, with such a vast and, and multidimensional problematic. And this is very easy to measure, not just in terms of uh, QI, but, uh, IQ, but uh, in, in, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the past and uh, the CVs. And it's, it's measurable and it's easy to, to know. Two. We definitely would need that this person knows how to talk to uh, the new uh, uh, people in office. Uh, I'm talking about the other one. And uh, also to have skills to federate and to engage in a continuous and sustainable daily work regarding this. Three, how to not give this impression that this is mine, but rather this is ours, not just nationwide, but worldwide. We need this open, opening 
to have everybody engaged. But we need filters that would capture the quant's essence of uh, those efforts and put them in a comprehensive uh, strategy and, and, and built up. We would need definitely from such a person to be open to the uh, new technology folks and because this is the era and we need to understand that people are not anymore in uh, the uh, agoras or in uh, whatever uh, libraries or in, in classrooms they're in front of their iPads and in front of their laptops and smartphones and we need to get to them there in an efficient competitive manner so we need to engage with Google people, with Facebook people, uh, Snapchat people, Twitter, name it. All those new uh, social media need to be involved. But we need also to suggest either some money uh, collecting, uh, some uh, fundraising for those companies, because they are private sector and they we might ask them for some philanthropy, but we need also to give help, because if they are to uh, recruit people who will be taken care within their own structures uh, of this problematic daily basis, we are talking about some big salaries uh, there. So we need uh, those know-hows and those uh, types of expertise to be within the skills of the people who will be uh, engaging with this problematic uh, structure-wise in the government. Much to think about. The planning has begun, I'm sure. Um, since we're running short on time, I'd really like to open this up to some questions from all of you. Um, sir, over here. Uh, if uh, the microphone will come around and if you could introduce yourself. I will. I'm Jordan Sellers. I'm with FJS Helter Skelter Politics and Social Science. My question is to what you just spoke about. Can you go a little bit more into detail what you meant about fundraising? Yes. I. We uh, definitely have experienced engaging with private sex people. They might be as angel as we wish them to be, but nevertheless, they would you know, uh, want their companies to generate some benefit. We cannot ask them uh, to uh, engage in big enterprises without uh, guaranteeing the assets to uh, recruit the people who will be working, the brains who will be working on uh, those issues. And this is why we need, uh, there is a report that was issued yesterday by uh, CSIS and it's, it talks about $1 billion for uh, those uh, uh, enterprises and engaging in uh, this uh, battle uh, against violence extremism. So we also need dollars. It's not just pious uh, souls and wishes. It's also capacities. It's also budgets, finance-wise, and definitely this political uh, engagements and will. If we take uh, the new Alex presidents here in the United States of the world, because he said uh, we need to defeat ISIS. Barack Obama 
said the same thing. But we have proof that uh, Mr. Barack Obama, uh, the President of the United States, uh, before uh, the uh, institution, um, did his share. So we are aspiring from the new Alex President to do his share as well. The United States of America is a country of establishments, of legislation, rule of law. So we need to uh, make sure to send the messages that your success as the new president of the United States is definitely yoked to how you would tackle such issue. We need the people in the media to do their share of the work, saying this, voicing it, and letting it uh, appear uh, in uh, the scene so that it would be perceived by everybody who would ask from the new uh, Alex president, the president, after a few weeks to uh, do what uh, there is uh, a need to do in this regard. Money uh, definitely is not everything, but it's, it's very important as well. Uh, next question, ma'am. Thank you so much, Dr. Abadi. It was a really educational um, points that you gave us. I'm with Legacy International. We do a lot of training of emerging leaders in the ages of 20 to 34 throughout the Muslim world, from Indonesia all the way to the Middle East. A lot of times uh, they're working on this issue. They're working to better their society in all of those aspects, public health, entrepreneurship, all of those things. But they run up against corruption in their own governments and the inability to make effective change. What advice do you have for them? Well, this is what, what we're talking about. This is a very salient bottom line when talking about engaging with Daesh and Nice, because this is where they tap in. This is what they would uh, brandish when trying to convince those youngsters and inviting them uh, to their ranks because they would uh, base themselves on that despair and just mirror the fact that it's possible and feasible to defeat those corrupt people by uh, being in the ranks. And you would have the Nusra, which means the victory of Allah, if you come in. And the, the earth would be inherited by the righteous. And those exodus are filling up their websites and their tweets, and it's all over the place. So. Leadership and capacitation and capacities building and empowerment are very highly needed. Because when you raise a leader, female or male, they would learn how to take care of their own selves and of their own initiatives and how to defeat uh, such challenges on the ground. Because they would know how to make a decision how to engage with, with the topography of reality, how to uh, fundraise, how to build up uh, their, their, their projects, and how to evaluate them, how, how to embezzle them, name it. And this is very highly needed, because those skills can be used in politics, can be used in social work, in service, even in communication. And uh, definitely, I, I praise the work and evaluate the work you're doing, and I thank you for it. But if there is uh, ever an advice that I shall give, is please continue doing what you're doing and persevere, and let us all start doing that, raising new leaders and icons 
in the region. Now, sorry, um, but what I did see about 10 years ago were women with the covered from just the eye open, you know, the total total covering, which to me meant more of an extremist. But what I was listening to all of the things that you were talking about is not, I didn't hear anything about economic development because part of keeping young men or, or people busy is jobs. And I was wondering, you know, what kind of aspect, what, what, what were you thinking of doing in, in that area? This is exactly what I meant when I said they would say in their tweets, you're jobless, come to me, I'll give you a job. This is the economical sign. And Eric, in the introduction, talked about the uh, uh, Human uh, Development Initiative. And I did not want to seem uh, someone who is just uh, advertising his own country. This is a global issue, and we need to own it, all of us. And definitely, I totally agree with you that's economic is a very fundamental pillar of uh, this multi-dimensional approach we've been trying to uh, talk about during uh, our, our exchange in uh, chat uh, this, this noon. Uh, also, uh, of course, when you have a population of one billion young people in the region, one billion, and they would be evolving in four years to be one billion and two hundred millions in the region. We don't want those people to be in despair. We don't want those people to be with us any horizon of hope. We want them to have hope and have confidence of the feasibility of any trial to create a better world. And this is what we need to generate today. And definitely, if we are not keen to show what are the success stories within the peers and initiate a peers-to-peers -peers dynamic in which and within which those peers would engage with their peers. So for them, success would not be some very far dream to reach, but it's here. It's in the air. And this is why visibility of the successful people is very highly needed today, economically wise, but also artistically wise, satire wise. In all those dimensions, we need hope, we need success stories, we need uh, the world of possibility to appear saliently so that it would generate the needed trust and confidence. Time for one or two more questions, sir, in the back. Hi, my name is Radcliffe Lewis. I'm with Intellect Says, just a blog and a journal for public policy review. Picking up on what you just said about instilling vision inside your own people, the people that you're trying to reach out to over here, the Zuckerbergs and the other people who develop things like um, Twitter and Instagram, these are people who developed their abilities in a free and open society. Now, to develop the capacity, you have to, um, to in order to create short text and memes and images and so on and patterns, 
you have to have enough freedom of expression in order for the visual artist to do things like drawing and photography and all the things and experiment first. You have to give them a chance to experiment in the labs and the studios in order to then become the savvy media artists that you're trying to reach out to in order to defeat Dash. But if your scholars and your government and your religious leaders hold the power to condemn individuals simply if, for example, a woman refuses to wear a burqa, how do you tap the intellectual capacity of the youth in your own society in order to convince them that they can have a fulfilling life without being adrenalized by the magnetism of Dash? Um, can you please elaborate on some of the steps your own government has taken in order to instill freedom of expression in your own people relative to your mission? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this very comprehensive and clear question. And you just put your finger on one of the most challenging issues, actually. And this is real. What you said is real in the region, by the way. And the ostrich policy will not do. We need to face it and we need to tackle it in an intelligent and limpid manner. Of course, human rights in many countries of the region are still tackled in a cosmetic way. Because it's in vogue, it's a sign of avant-garde, people just you know, adopt the slogans of human rights and freedom of speech, freedom of expression. But to get it to a deeper layer of doing it, not just saying it, having it infiltrate the laws and legislations and constitutions, and putting in place structures of accountancy and reckoning that would touch this, having a free press to follow up and to definitely demask and disavatars those who are saying what they're not doing. Unless you do this, you will not reach this other deeper layer. And this is a work that needs to be done by the people of those societies themselves. Because if they are dictated to do this, it would look, sound, appear as if there were conditions to be left alone and to not be, uh, you know, uh, disturbed by all uh, what they've been doing negatively. So, uh, well, let's do this to be in uh, accordance with uh, those amendments of the United Nations and what the European Union wants and what the United States uh, wants and uh, then would stay uh, tranquil and, and nobody would disturb us anymore. This is what I mean by cosmetic. So it's an ongoing work and here we would need some true leaders once again. People who would be convinced that this is the way and who would be ready to give away their time, their energy, 
their tranquility and even their freedom if there is need for such a thing are not go up to their lives uh, as well. But it's uh, an engagement. You cannot tackle those issues from uh, a neutral. You need to put your hands in uh, the bacon uh, paste. But what is Morocco doing about that? What Morocco tried to do, starting from 1990, is exactly to operate the shift from cosmetics, human rights-wise, to real human rights acts. And at first, we've had this consultative council for human rights. And it still had some cosmetics in it. Because, you know, we've had lots of resistance then. And Lace King has a second, was aware that the uh, next millennium would not allow secrecy, would not allow uh, darkness in, in those realms. We need, we need it to be real, not cosmetic. Then, after our uh, actual king, um, the sixth, came into office, he realized that, well, we have some wounds in the past and grievances, and we have some damages to repair. And this is why we need to open up very transparently the pages. And this is how the reconciliation and equity movement was launched in 2002. And those very painful and heavy memories, pages, souvenirs were open, broadcasted on TV, on radio, and everybody knew about any uh, and every uh, grievance of people who have suffered disparation and in jailing and, 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 and imprisonment and, and name it. And then budgets were prepared to restore the damages realistically wise and the scales of evaluation of the damages and how to repair them was clear and known to everybody. Moreover, dignity was to be restored as well because We've had some disparations and killings. We went as far as to take from the collective tombs that we've discovered, the uh, skeletons, and then reburied them in honor. It, it was a very painful period of time. It lasted for three years and a half, almost four years. But after that, there was a relief. Going along with vigilance, because, you know, those shadows are there, and they can gain uh, at any time. Then there was a need to mobilize budgets for human development and building up of capacities. And this was launched in 2005, 2006. And yearly basis, there are in the governmental budgets morasses and clauses that would stipulate the amounts of money that would go for this initiative. And this is in transparency as well. I'm not advertising my country. I'm just responding to your question. And human rights, we've been creating bachelor degrees, and master's degrees, and also encourage people to engage for doctoral 
diplomas to tackle those issues because those matters are quite intricate and you cannot assimilate them unless you have some academic work going along with this episteme of freedom you've alluded to. And this is why it was very crucial to create spaces in which such a training would be given. People would be able to theorize and to dive into the history and extract this RMR, retro-moderate uh, relativism, that would assist people to adopt the notions of human rights based on their own culture, because such an ownership is crucial. And then we've been going to, through the generations of rights until the third uh, generation, and now the fourth generation, I mean solidarity rights. The techniques through which solidarity rights work in society are different from uh, the techniques uh, through which the other rights and, 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 and types of rights to work in society. And those rights would require sets of capacities that need to be built. And this is why the academic dimension is important as well. Media, blogs, all of this is needed to accompany a given society. And this is what we've been trying to do in Morocco, to make the transition towards this horizon that we all aspire for. It's not easy. Once again, it's a daily work. We need political parties to understand it, to assimilate it, to put it in their training curriculums, programs, and manifestos. We need the unions of workers also to understand this, civil society to understand this, to launch the dynamics that would guarantee the minimum required to get to this uh, society we all aspire to get to. Thank you so much uh, for sharing your perspectives. And, and we hope that we can welcome you back here at some point. My pleasure. Not too long from now. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.